It has been a year now since the world got hit by the pandemic. Close to invisible, this virus has led to a great deal of change not only directly in the field of medicine and healthcare, but also extends to every aspect of one's life and livelihood. It served as a wake-up call for all, people of all walks of life. Hello, I'm Amira. And I'm Lavanya. And today we will discuss some pearls and reveal some skeletons. Happy New Year everyone! I think it's a bit of an understatement to say that 2020 was an interesting year, mostly owing to the topic that we will be talking about today. As we now embark in the third surge of the pandemic, it seems like there's no better time to sit down, reflect and discuss this trending topic. Well, it is definitely not surprising to know that coronavirus was the most searched word on Google in 2020. Today's episode is called COVID-19 Then and Now. Aren't we simply thrilled today to share some key information on COVID-19? I'm super thrilled, Amira. Before we get into that, can you kind of give us a bit of an introduction on what we do on this show? Sure, Lavanya. So, we are an internal medicine channel that aims to provide listeners with information on clinically relevant topics in the world of medicine. Well, sometimes we talk about personal experiences too, if we think that could strike the listener's fancy. Yeah, so sharing our experiences could be fun. So today we'll be doing a quick recap on what was understood in the beginning of this COVID-19 battle to what we have learned over the months in certain aspects of this disease. So let's dive into it. When we look at the origin of this virus, we have understood that the earliest reports of a coronavirus infection in animals occurred in the late 1920s. Human coronaviruses were then discovered 40 years later. So what are coronaviruses? To explain it simply, coronaviruses are a group of related RNA viruses that cause diseases in mammals and birds. Amira, can you still remember back in uh, 2003, we were shocked by an outbreak of severe respiratory illness called Severe Acute Respiratory Syndrome, SARS, caused by SARS-CoV. Mm-hmm. Later in 2012, a similar viral respiratory illness emerged caused by one of the coronavirus strain called the Middle East Respiratory Syndrome, MERS-CoV, which is understood to be originating from bats. Human beings are also typically infected from camels. Then, in December 2019, we discovered a novel strain of this virus called SARS-CoV-2, which is accountable for the coronavirus disease COVID-19. This novel strain of coronavirus was first identified in a cluster of cases of pneumonia in a place called Wuhan in Hubei province, China. By mid of January 2020, we had pretty much understood the genetic sequence of SARS-CoV-2 and the first case reported out of China was then. Yeah, and it has been 10 months now since the World Health Organization or WHO has announced this disease as a pandemic. And to date, we have over 96 million cases worldwide with just over 2 million reported deaths. The disease initially spread to South Korea, Italy, Iran and Japan. One month into the pandemic, there were 60 countries affected and today we have 219 countries with reported COVID-19 cases. Isn't that pretty much the entire world, Amira? Yes, certainly. There are only a handful of countries in the South Pacific and Asia left with no reported cases from the coronavirus pandemic. So let's now look at some local statistics. Malaysia reported its first case in January 2020 and it was traced back to foreign nationals entering the country. Not too long later, we identified local cases following an event held in Kuala Lumpur. From foreign cases, now we are dealing with a surge in community spread of the disease. So how is this disease transmitted? The mode of transmission of SARS-CoV-2 is understood to be likely via large respiratory droplets. Virus can also be detected in stool sample, but to date, we do not have much data on fecal-oral route transmission. 
Yeah, and the incubation period ranges anywhere from 1 to 14 days, averaging at 5 to 6 days. Some cases may even take up to 24 days to show symptoms. Recently, we are seeing a spike in transmission of COVID-19 among healthcare workers. As of December 2020, we had reported just over 1,000 cases among healthcare workers, with a little over 75% of those reported during the current third wave. It is identified that a third got it from the community, almost 40% while working in the hospital, and amongst those, 80% from fellow colleagues are the 20% from patients who were initially not known to be COVID positive. The Klang Valley has actually seen over 65,000 cases from the time the pandemic started in Malaysia. Currently, Selangor records the highest number of cumulative cases since the beginning of the pandemic, as well as daily cases reported in the last four weeks. Mm -hmm. And when we look at the epidemiology, an important concept to understand is the basic reproduction number denoted as R0. So R0 can be thought of as the number of cases that is expected to be produced by a single infected person. For example, Ebola has an R0 of 2. So on average, a person who has Ebola will pass it on to two other people. In simple terms, R0 refers to the degree of contagiousness. Now referring to the modelling by our National Institute of Health, the value of R0 at the beginning of the movement control order, which was on the 18th of March uh, 2020, was 35 this R0 value has been reduced to 0.3 sometime mid of last year following the positive impact of the actions taken by the government and of course assisted by the public's compliance. At this current moment, however, the R0 in Malaysia has risen to 1.2. Despite a low R0, the cases reported daily are increasingly high. This is because as the R0 increased from 0.3 to 1.2, daily we are expecting to see 1.2 new cases to each infected individual. At our current standing, Malaysia can potentially record 8,000 daily cases by the third week of March, according to a statistical model posted by our Director General of Health, which I really doubt because we are probably going to see a higher number than that if the R0 remains. Yep, I agree with you, Amira. Thanks for all that useful information. So I happened to come across this particular analogy which I found to be very fascinating and I, and I thought I would like to share that with you guys. With reference to R0, imagine you are explaining to your ward doctors that they will be expecting 30 new admissions over a period of one month versus 30 new admissions over a day. The latter is certainly overwhelming. Thus, flattening the curve has become the mainstay strategy of containing the spread of the disease by simply slowing down the spread of the virus similar to the first scenario. Now, now, getting into the interesting bit, where everyone talks about today, the value of testing. The two main problems that I think we have faced and to a certain extent might still be suffering from with testing are the under-testing and over-diagnosis. So in April 2020, the WHO and the CDC announced that testing is to be reserved for those who have a fever and or respiratory symptoms such as cough, sore throat and difficulty breathing with a recent travel history to China or anywhere the virus is confirmed or for those who have been close contacts with those confirmed infected with SARS-CoV-2 in the last 14 days. So what does it mean when you say close contact, Amira? Right, so close contact here refers to being within six feet from a person who is suspected or known to have the disease without personal protective equipment or the PPE on. I see. So, however, in the last couple of months, we have seen a drastic increment in the testing rates as more community spread is seen. The Ministry of Health has screened close to 1.7 million individuals as of October 10th, bringing Malaysia's COVID-19 testing rate to 51 per 1,000 people. 
This could explain the increasing number of COVID-19 cases detected daily in Malaysia in the recent weeks. Hmm, interesting. So how about overdiagnosis then? Note that overdiagnosis does not mean a patient is given the wrong diagnosis. It simply means that patients with minute viral loads receive positive COVID-19 diagnosis. I guess it will surely be useful to discuss the different genes of SARS-CoV-2 that are tested and how to interpret those results in one of the upcoming episodes. Yes, I agree, Lavanya. Looking forward to that. So, on the same topic, which is testing, what are the ways to test someone for this disease, Amira? Okay, so the gold standard method has always been reverse transcriptase polymerase chain reaction. That is what we call the RT-PCR test, where it detects the RNA of the virus from a nasopharyngeal and or oropharyngeal swab. It uses the reverse transcriptase enzyme to form a DNA and amplify the sequence in a solution. If one has sputum, that sample is used for better yield. And how about RTK antigen testing then? Yes, yeah, sure. So, RTK antigen, which also refers to the rapid test kit antigen, looks at the presence of SARS-CoV-2 antigen, which is a substance from the virus. This antigen is seen in the early phase of the infection. Repeated technical evaluation conducted on the latest distribution supply showed an increase in the sensitivity level from 84% to 90%, while the specificity level remained at 100% which means this test is good at identifying those who do not have the disease. If someone is tested negative on RTK antigen, it is almost certain that they do not have the infection. But the downside to this test is that if it's done too early in the disease, which we might never know in an asymptomatic person, it may yield a negative result as the viral load in the person is not high enough to flag a positive result. Amira, can you tell me what are the advantages of this test if it's compared to the um, RT-PCR test? Well, the antigen test can be done in large numbers and in a short time. Hence, it allows immediate isolation and contact tracing to be done. This comes in handy when large centre screening is done, for instance, you know, in prisons, factories, detention centres, nursing homes and for travellers. So apart from the RT-PCR and RTK antigen tests, we also have serological tests, which detect antibodies and therefore making it possible to learn the stock of people who have had COVID-19 so far. Governments can use this method to learn how much immunity has been built in a specific group of the population. If there is data relating to high immunity, then considerations can be made to relax lockdowns in those areas. Cool. Now, let's take a look at the clinical presentation of someone who is infected with SARS-CoV-2. Clinical features of COVID-19 are no longer foreign to us, right? So almost everyone now is aware of when they should get tested if they develop symptoms. Once a person is confirmed COVID-19 positive based on a nasopharyngeal swab PCR test, imaging techniques such as a chest x-ray and pulmonary CT scans can be used to diagnose pneumonia. Oh, Lavania, how do you then classify the patients diagnosed with COVID-19? Yeah, so I'd like to emphasize here the five clinical stages of COVID-19 based on the National Institute of Health classification. So we start off with stage one. It's when one is has no symptoms or what we call asymptomatic. This could be those who are pre-symptomatic as well. Stage two happens when someone has symptoms but has no pneumonia. Symptoms here mean having fever or chills, cough, sore throat, gastrointestinal disturbances, and now more commonly reported anosmia, which is the loss of smell, and agusia, which is the loss of taste. Stage 3 occurs when one is symptomatic with the evidence of pneumonia. Stage 4 happens when symptomatic patients with pneumonia now require oxygen support, 
And finally, in stage 5, we see those being critically ill with multi-organ failure requiring intensive care unit uh, management. Let's look at some local data. A nationwide observational study done in Malaysia showed that almost half of all people that have COVID-19 remained asymptomatic and the infection limited itself. Out of the remaining half of them, about 88% developed mild to moderate disease, which if we look at the categories, then they would be stage 2 and 3. The remaining 12% progressed into severe disease. And among those with severe disease, 62% of them required ICU admission and care, and a third of them succumbed to the illness. So who are those that are at high risk of progressing to severe disease, Lavanya? Good question, Amira. So it is found that those with comorbidities such as history of chronic cardiac disease, hypertension, chronic kidney disease, diabetes and obesity are at higher risk of progressing to category 4 and 5. Understood. Which is why it is important for us to promptly identify those that can develop severe disease. In the assessment of a COVID-19 patient, early indicators of deterioration were coined to identify patients who are prone to hyperinflammatory processes or those who are at high risk for deterioration. So what are these early indicators? Early indicators are also what we call warning signs. These signs are currently being utilised by COVID-19 hospitals in Malaysia and is in the process of being validated. I see. Could you list a few examples of warning signs for us, Amira? Sure. So I like how it is categorized into clinical and biochemical warning signs. Clinical warning signs will include having persistent fever and lethargy, loss of appetite and cough, reduced level of consciousness in the absence of alternate explanations such as uremia and hypoglycemia, respiratory compromise such as exertional dyspnea or desaturation, a respiratory rate of more than 25 breaths per minute and an oxygen saturation of less than 95% on room air. There are also laboratory warning signs, and these include rising CRP levels or a single high CRP of more than 5 mg per deciliter with downgoing absolute lymphocyte counts, so that's the ALC, or a single ALC of less than 1, or a neutrophil lymphocyte ratio of more than 3.13. I get you. And apart from lab investigations, we also have radiological warning signs. A simple chest x-ray can tell us if there are features of severe pneumonia, multilobular involvement or rapidly worsening chest x-ray. So then how does a CT scan help in these cases since a radiograph may tell us the presence of pneumonia already? Well, I have learned that a CT scans of the thorax have a significant value in not only diagnosing COVID-19 pneumonia based on its specific features, but also excluding other pulmonary complications such as nosocomial pneumonia with effusion, abscesses, cavitations, organizing pneumonia and pneumatocils. It also helps with prognostication and early rehabilitation initiation. Wow, now that is a lot of value that I see there. But you know, Lavania, the best has yet to come. I would like to add though um, that a pulmonary CT is not recommended as a screening or a diagnostic tool but instead reserved for the management of hospitalised patients. Yes, agreed. Pulmonary CT scans function as additional tests to chest x-rays in severe disease to provide us more information on potential pulmonary complications. That's right. So now moving on to the therapeutics used in the treatment of COVID-19 so far. Now, Lavanya, would you like to take us back to the early periods of this disease? Yes, yeah, sure, I'll be glad to. 
I can still recollect back in April 2020, steroids was not recommended. But today, steroids are used as one of the mainstay therapy in those with a hyperinflammatory disease in COVID-19. What a big shift. I know, right? Dexamethasone, which is a corticosteroid, has been found to improve survival in hospitalized patients who require supplemental oxygen, with the greatest effect observed in patients who require mechanical ventilation. Therefore, you know, the use of dexamethasone is strongly recommended in this setting. Indeed, but what is clear to us is the importance of supportive management. Just like any other viral pneumonia, the mainstay therapy will include providing adequate hydration and oxygenation, and of course a lot of rest. Interestingly, in this disease, special attention is given to advising one to lie prone. It is studied that the physical position affects the distribution and volume of air in the lungs and can have direct effects on the expansion or collapse of the alveoli that permits gaseous exchange. And now this technique goes way back to the 1970s where clinicians were investigating the potentials of placing patients on their stomachs to treat acute respiratory distress syndrome or ARDS. That's a fun fact, isn't it? Yeah, thanks for that information about ARDS, Lavanya. Now on to my personal favorite part, antivirals. So antivirals in COVID-19 work by inhibiting viral replication and thus given in the early phase of the illness where most of the viral replication happens. So a study by Saunders et al. found that because viral replication may be particularly active early in the course of the disease, antiviral therapy may have the greatest impact before the illness progresses into the hyperinflammatory state that can lead to critical illness. Let's look at remdesivir, which as of October 2020 is currently the only drug that is approved by the Food and Drug Administration, the FDA, for the treatment of COVID-19. A phase 3 trial showed beneficial clinical effects of remdesivir in patients who require supplemental oxygen. Remdesivir reduces the time to recovery by 31%. With regards to mortality, a lower 14-day mortality rate of patients treated with remdesivir was reported from the Adaptive COVID-19 Treatment Trial, the ACTT1 study, which may indicate a beneficial but not statistically significant effect. Moving on to favipiravir, which is an antiviral approved in China and India, it's now currently also being used in Malaysia in the treatment of COVID-19 patients. This drug is reserved for those in the viral phase of the infection with pneumonia and warning signs. Alternatively, it is also given in end-stage renal failure patients or in those above 50 years old with comorbidities. Interesting. I think we should have one entire episode dedicated just for antivirals and other available therapies which are currently on trial in the treatment for COVID-19 soon. Right, and I think we should also talk about clots and anticoagulants since that is also an issue that surrounds COVID-19 and, you know, we often send off D-dimer levels to the lab for patients who are on supplemental oxygen or intubated patients and to be completely honest, most of the time I don't know what to do with those values. So that's definitely a topic that's worth dissecting, right? So to conclude, we honestly do not know what to do with D-dimers, right? Uh, steroids are great for sick patients on ventilators and supplemental oxygen. And there is still much to learn about this pandemic and what we can hope is the only massive public health emergency that we encounter in our lifetimes. Thank you guys. Hope you guys enjoyed it. We have some more exciting stories on COVID-19 in the upcoming episodes. And before we go, we would like to leave you guys with a great quote of the day. The antidote to fear is knowledge. And with that, signing off from me, Lavanya. Me, Amira. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.